open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3. Our focus this morning will be on verses 6 through 9. I'll be reading verses 1 through 14. Galatians 3, 1 through 14. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, grant Your Spirit to make these truths plain. That we might know these things in a settling, determinative way. Father, for those whose hearts, think that their works are some kind of basis, even though they believe the gospel, and they're troubled, 
May they know this this morning. That we stand righteous before the holy God of heaven. Not by works. But by faith in the Christ. And Father, for the proud and arrogant of us this morning. Even though we believe the Gospel, yet we think we stand a little taller because of our works of law. Humble us. So that we realize for left to our hands we would be eternally cursed. And only because of the imputed righteousness of Christ can we stand before You. Send Your Spirit, Father, to teach these things. In Christ's name, Amen. The Renaissance ran alongside the Reformation. The major difference between the two, of course, being that the Renaissance was centered on man, whereas the Reformation was centered on God. The Renaissance was humanistic, whereas the Reformation was theistic. Now certainly, those involved in the Renaissance cloaked their humanism in religious garb. So think of Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. And you can see the humanism that really is central to it with all the religious garb added in to veil it. But still, in God's common grace, the Renaissance was an aid, in many ways, to the Reformation. So, one example, the return to Greek thought and forms meant with it necessarily a return to the Greek language. And so it was that Erasmus produced his Greek New Testament that served the Reformation in so many ways. Or, along with this, consider the motto ad fontes, back to the sources. This was a motto not only for the Renaissance, but for the Reformation. The Reformers didn't see themselves as going forward into new territory, but backwards. Theirs was a program not of advancing above those who preceded them, but recovering what had been lost. The Reformers showed no timidity concerning the early church fathers. Calvin wrote, Moreover, they unjustly set the ancient fathers against us. I mean the ancient writers of a better age of the church. As if in them, they had supporters of their own impiety. If the contest were to be determined by patristic authority, the tide of victory, to put it very modestly, would turn to our side. Now these fathers have written many wise and excellent things. Still, what commonly happens to men has befallen them too in some instances. For these so-called pious children of theirs, with all their sharpness of wit and judgment and spirit, worship only the faults and errors of the fathers. The good things that these fathers have written, they either do not notice or misrepresent or pervert. You might say their only care is to gather dung amid gold. So the writings of Luther and Calvin abound in quotations of the early fathers, but they made it clear that for the reformers, ad fontes, back to the sources, meant 
that they were returning to the ultimate authority of the inerrant and eternal Word of the triune God. Likewise, Paul takes the Galatians here back to the source. Takes them back to Abraham, the father of the Jews. More than that, he takes them back to the Old Testament Scriptures that they seemed so keen on and demonstrates from there that Abraham was not reckoned righteous upon the basis of his works, but his faith. Paul offers up two arguments from the Old Testament in verses 6 and 8. And then a consequent follows each one of these arguments in verses 7 and 9. A consequent that he wants us to know, verse 7. Know then. So two arguments from the Old Testament, and then two things that follow that he wants us to know. Now in verses 1 through 5, Abraham, uh, Paul excuse me, argued upon the basis of their experience and the receiving of the Spirit. Now he's going to argue upon the basis of Scripture and what it says concerning Abraham. But these sections are not unrelated as indicated by, verse 6, the phrase, just as. So what's the connection between Abraham and his being reckoned righteous by faith and the Galatians and their having received the Spirit by faith? Certainly, whenever Paul is speaking about their receiving the Spirit, it's for the purpose of solidifying the truth that they're justified by faith. If you've received the Spirit by faith, that speaks to you as one who's been justified by that same faith. But is that as far as the connection goes? Is that the only thing that he wants to show by this? While that alone is substantial, there's yet far more here. We took some time to unpack some of this whenever we asked the question, why was baptism considered so substantial by Paul as to end this discussion? Remember 3 and verse 2? Let me ask you only this. Just answer this. If you answer this question, it will be plain and obvious. And this question has a plain and obvious answer. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the reason that the receiving of the Spirit is so substantial is because it is the promised Spirit. Verse 14. He is the promised Spirit. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Notice that blessing of Abraham and then the promised Spirit are put there side by side. But for now, just focus on the phrase, He's the promised Holy Spirit. He was promised to Israel in their redemption. A redemption that would include the Gentiles. And so Joel prophesied, speaking God's Word, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out My Spirit, God says, on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters 
shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Joel 2.28 So Israel's sons and daughters prophesy, and yet you're told that the Spirit's poured out on all flesh. Can those two things go together? Joel follows it saying, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of Yahweh shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as Yahweh has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom Yahweh calls. These verses are very Israelitish, and yet everyone all fleshy. Through Isaiah, God promises, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So it's upon Israel's offspring, Israel's descendants, that the spirit is promised to be poured out on. And notice that in Isaiah, we also went from the spirit to blessing. Just as here, we're going from the Spirit, verses 1-5, through five, to blessing, verses 8 and following. The Spirit being poured out on the Gentiles then testifies that they participate in these promises made to Israel and the blessings thereof. To use Paul's metaphor from Romans 11, what this says is not that God has a Jew tree and a Gentile tree and He's watering them both with the Spirit. What this says is that there is this single olive tree that God is watering with the Spirit. And if the Gentiles are receiving the Spirit, it says that they've been grafted into that single tree and are participants. And the promises made unto them. I think what's naturally understood here is that the Spirit is not only a sign and a seal and a guarantee of the salvation that they have because of faith in Christ, but it signifies that as part of all of that, they partake in the promises made to Abraham. In this, Paul's single Focus remains the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But, the way he develops this as that they partake in the promises made to Abraham makes that singular point more emphatic, more clear. If you participate in these promises to Abraham, justification by faith is a given. You stand just if you're participating in these. So God supplying the Spirit by faith, not by works of the law, then is like, it is just as, Abraham's being counted righteous by faith. It's not just that these things are happening by the same means, faith. It's that these things speak to one and the other. Having the Spirit indicates you've been one who's been justified, and that justification came just the same way that you received the Spirit, by faith. 
And both of those say that you partake of the promises made to Abraham. So in this, Paul is referencing Genesis 15.6. You remember there God brought Abraham outside and said to him, Look toward heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And in response, we're told of Abraham, he believed Yahweh, and he, Yahweh, counted it to him as righteousness. What does it mean that he counted it as righteousness? Does it mean that God, looking at man, realizing he can never measure up? He can never keep the law, and so I'll count, I'll reckon, his faith as though it were righteousness. Does it mean that he somehow lowered the standard? The teacher realizes that this class is full of duds. And there's no possible way any of them will get an A. And so in mercy, I will reckon your E for effort as an A. You really got an F, but you put your heart into it. So I'm going to count it as though it were an A. Is that what is said here? No, the language of justification or righteousness upon the grounds is not upon the grounds of faith. That's not what he's saying. You're counted righteous not because faith is the grounds or the basis of that legal declaration, but faith is the means or the instrument by which an alien righteousness is counted or reckoned as yours. So Galatians 2.15, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is laboring to show us that we're not justified because of our faith. We are justified by or through faith. That's his emphasis. So why is it then that faith in Christ results in us being counted righteous? Because faith clings to the Christ who is our righteousness. The standard for righteousness isn't lowered. It's achieved. You are saved by works. The good news is, they're not your own. The standard for righteousness is achieved by Christ and then reckoned or imputed to us as we cling to Christ in faith, as we are in union with Christ. This is the doctrine of imputation. Christ's righteousness is imputed or counted or reckoned ours through faith. Imputation is double. Our sins are reckoned unto Christ. His righteousness counted as ours. In verses 10 through 14, we see that Christ was cursed in our place For our law-breaking, our sins were imputed to Him. And the inverse is what lies within imputation as He's unfolding it here. 
that Christ perfectly kept the law in our place such that His righteousness is counted to us. Romans 5.18-19 makes this plain. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. When Adam sinned, as your representative, your federal head, his sin was imputed to you such that you were condemned. And inversely, because of Christ's obedience, the elect to whom God gives the gift of faith by regeneration will be counted, reckoned righteous. Paul goes on in Romans 5. As by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So in this letter, we've already seen that justification is central to the gospel, and what you're seeing now is that imputation is central to justification. So you're at the center of the center with this. R.C. Sproul testified to the importance of this doctrine whenever in light of the word evangelical being recognized to be empty, vacuous, largely without meaning, he proposed that in its place we call ourselves imputationists. The reason we're justified by faith in Christ is because our sins were imputed to Christ, that His righteousness might be imputed to us. Faith is only as good as its object. The reason why faith in Christ is potent for justification is because of imputation. As important as how Abraham was justified through faith is when he was justified. So Paul will work this out on the macro level in just a few verses. Verses 17 through 18. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So Abraham was justified before the giving of the law at Sinai. This speaks to faith as the instrument through which we're justified on the macro level. But what's also understood is that as Paul is referencing Genesis 15 here, that happens well before Genesis 17 when he receives the sign of circumcision. Circumcision or works of the law had no place in his being reckoned righteous. That doesn't come until later. Now consider that order. He's reckoned righteous through faith, Genesis 15. He receives the sign of circumcision later in life in Genesis 17. Consider that order and compare it to that that you see in the second century B.C. work, Jewish work, Syrac, which has included what some would call their Bible. Um, there we read in chapter 44 of Syrac, Abraham, father of many people, 
kept His glory without stain. He observed the Most High's command and entered into a covenant with Him. In His own flesh, He incised the ordinance and when tested was found to be loyal for this reason. God promised him with an oath to bless the nations through his descendants. Because of his faithfulness, because of circumcision, God made the promise to him. What Syrac says. So in the second century before Christ, there were Jews who believed that Abraham received the promise because of his work. And that strain of heretical virus had infected Judaism at large by the time of Christ. And now a mutation of that virus was threatening the church. Such men perverted the Scriptures. As Calvin said, those in Rome perverted the fathers. They twisted them this purpose. Paul teases out the true biblical order more fully in Romans 4, 9-12. through Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then, how then was it counted to him? Not why, but how? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Those are the Gentiles. And to make Him the Father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So when emphasizes how? Because it was so long before circumcision, it reinforces that this was by faith. But when also speaks to who? You saw that in Romans 4. And Paul draws it out as a consequent here. Verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Again, Romans 4. The purpose was to make Him the Father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. And you can say, I am one of them if you believe in Christ. Remember the warning that Jesus gave to the Pharisees, those strict observers of the law? Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. God raises up children for Abraham from among the Gentiles with their stone-dead hearts, giving them a heart of flesh to believe in Christ. The true children of Abraham are those not circumcised according to the law, but those who believe upon the promise of the Gospel. Paul wants us, verse 7, to know this. So often, this is the point of application of the Scriptures. Know this. We're humanists though. That just doesn't seem to center upon us as much as we'd like. That doesn't seem immediately practical for tomorrow. But that kind of application will keep you from soul-damning heresies that tell you to do for all the wrong reasons. Know this. How many of our problems are due simply because we do not know this? How often is it that whenever it comes to the practical decisions in your life, most of the time you know what it is you should do? And the real problem is you don't really deep-seatedly in your heart know why it is that you should do that at the most fundamental level. The motivating principle of faith in God and all of His promises. The response of gratitude and joy for His salvation. That's what's absent. Know this. Luther knew the value of knowing. He writes, we therefore do make the definition of a Christian that a Christian is not he which hath no sin or filleth no sin, but he to whom God imputeth not his sin because of his faith in Christ. This doctrine bringeth strong consolation to afflicted consciences and serious and inward terrors. It is not without good cause, therefore, that we do often repeat and beat into your heads the forgiveness of sin and imputation of righteousness for Christ's sake. Know this. Be your, your soul troubled by sin. Know this. You stand before God upon the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Be your soul puffed up with a delusion of self-righteousness. Know this. Your only hope is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Next we're told that the Scripture foresaw and preached this, verse 8. 
Scripture's personified here, but note that the way it's personified speaks that it is the Word of God. Scripture foresaw this because it's the Word of the omniscient and omnipotent God. The all-knowing and the all-powerful God. He's all-knowing because He's all-powerful. He declares the beginning from the end and none sway His hand. He accomplishes all His purposes. God determined to justify the Gentiles through faith. And so Scripture foresaw this as it preached the Gospel to Abraham. In you, all the nations shall be blessed. And that promise is found even earlier than Genesis 15. That's found in Genesis 12.3. But how is that the Gospel? In you... All the nations shall be blessed. Listen to Ephesians 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. In Christ, fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise, all in Christ through faith. So the promise that was spoken to Abraham comes to full light and revelation In Christ. And what is made clear is that it involves the elect of every nation participating in the blessedness promised to Abraham. So there's the gospel that Paul is preaching, and it is identical to the one God preached to Abraham. There are not Two different Gospels. There is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Abraham believed these promises. And when he did so, he was believing in Christ. And whenever you believe in Christ, you participate in these promises. And so, contrary to dispensationalists, who would have us believe that there's one plan for the Jews here and one plan for the Gentiles over here, and then accuse us of supersessionism or replacement theology, contrary to them, we do not say that the church replaces Israel. We say that true Israel is the church. And the true church is Israel. There's no replacement whenever the things are identical. 
Paul explains elsewhere, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. By the Spirit, not by the letter. Paul tells the Colossians, in Him, Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Additionally, it's made clear here, verse 8, that God justifies. And that He justifies by faith in Christ. So again, you're not counted righteous because of your faith. You're counted righteous through faith. And the one who is justifying you, counting you as righteous in this, is God. You don't make yourself righteous. You don't justify yourself. God justifies. And He does so through faith. Yet again, the commentary, the best commentary on Galatians is the fuller treatment that he gives these same things in Romans. Romans 3, 21-26 might be the most richly concentrated gospel passage in the Scriptures. So, it's clear that there Paul would comment on justification and imputation. Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Pause. There's this righteousness that's apart from the law. Galatians, not by works of the law. The Scriptures bear witness to it. Romans. Galatians, God preached the Gospel beforehand. The Scriptures foresaw and preached the Gospel beforehand. Resume. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier. Of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the Scriptures of the Old Testament bear witness to this. That all who believe without distinction are justified by God, by grace, through faith in Christ. Now for the second consequent, verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. 
So again, the point of the Old Testament quotation is not simply to say that you Gentiles are reckoned righteous in precisely the same way that Abraham was reckoned righteous, namely faith. The point is to go further than that and say you're not only justified like he was, you are blessed as he was. You are a blessed along with him. The blessing that comes to you is the blessing promised to Abraham. And so note how you've gone from the narrow focus of justification and you've backed up to the more swallowing and encompassing category now of blessing. Justification is a blessing that leads to blessedness. Justification is foundational. But it is not the pinnacle Justification is the fundamental blessing of salvation. It's how we're made right with God. But it is not the pinnacle blessing of our salvation. The God before whom we're justified is. What is this blessedness held out here? What is the significance of being a son of Abraham? What is the privilege of being blessed alongside with Abraham? In Genesis 12, we have the first of many instances where the Abrahamic covenant and its significance and meaning is unfolded for us. And there are basically three things promised to Abraham there. Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Land, offspring, and blessedness. And this takes you both forward and backward in the grand story of the Scriptures. It takes you back to the garden where you see God's people in God's place under God's rule blessed knowing their God. He blesses them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. They become a people. They fill the land. It takes you forward in the story after sin to after the blood of the Passover lamb was applied to His people and He's delivered them by judgment. Having given them His law at Sinai, He brings them to the land flowing with milk and honey where His temple and His name would be set in their midst and He would dwell among them. He would be their God, they would be His people. God's people in God's place under God's rule. It takes you further forward to the beginnings of new creation with man made new in hope of the consummation whenever the created order that was under our feet which is groaning for the redemption of our bodies 
comes to be made new. And we will forever be God's glorified people. In God's glorified place. Under His redemptive rule. Such that because of that very redemption, we love His rule. And it's our delight to obey and know such a God. Romans 4.13 says, The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. See what he tied together there? The promise to Abraham that he'd be heir of the world comes through imputation. Righteousness of faith. We are heirs of the world made new, children of Abraham, as we are justified by faith in the same Christ He believed in. As we are those of faith, we stand along with Abraham, the man of faith. None of the blessings and promises None of the blessing and promises held forth by God come by works of the law. Every one of them comes to sinful man by faith in the crucified Christ in whose God every promise is yes and amen. To establish this, Paul has taken us back ad fontes, back to the sources. And the source is not ultimately Father Abraham, but our Heavenly Father, who justified Abraham through the promised and concealed gospel of Jesus Christ and justifies us through the preached and revealed gospel of Jesus Christ. Know this. Know this. Know this. Holy Father, thanks be to You for the Christ and the rich and varied and endless and immeasurable riches that are ours in Him because of Your work in justifying us through faith in Him.
Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.